Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. When the James Harden news broke that he was being traded to the Clippers, I knew exactly who I wanted to talk to for this week's episode. I wasn't sure if I could get Derek Bodner because he has a lot going on. He's doing excellent work, of course, with PHLY, but I did. took a couple days, and we had a great conversation, not only on the many angles of the James Harden situation, including the shift in his relationship with Daryl Morey, the ramifications for the Sixers and for Harden and for the Clippers, but also some other 76ers topics, which I thought were so fascinating. We talked about Joel Embiid, his development, his future, what Tyrese Maxey has done so far this year, where he might be going, potential targets for Philadelphia's spending power resources moving forward, but also smaller stuff like how Jaden Springer has developed. And conversation runs about an hour. I absolutely loved it. Brought to you by FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston and new customers can get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. Lots of great stuff in here. Honestly, even if you're not a Sixers fan, but you just want to understand the situation more fully and where it might be going, I highly recommend you listening. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Happy to talk basketball with one of my favorite people. Well, I appreciate that. And as soon as what went down went down... And I'm I th- not just saying that because you invited me to a buffet in Vegas a couple years back, although that definitely helps, Danny. I appreciated that. Yeah, I mean... I, I I was happy to have you along, and um, we had a we had a good conversation then. I mean, you and I have known each other for years. And when everything that, that went down, I guess let's call it Halloween. I mean, it was confusing with the time zones and everything yeah. else like that. I I knew that I wanted to talk to you if you had the time, and I don't know. I, I kind of wanted to open it up to you in terms of where to start. There's a lot of ground to cover here. I mean, I guess. I guess the funniest part to me about this, the whole Philly James Harden experience is that even with the awkwardness of how it ended, when you consider what they gave up, including trading Ben Simmons to get him, overall, it was still worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, like they they got like the the James Harden thing didn't work out. You know, certainly when you look, I would ask Daryl, like when they made the trade, he wanted to win a title with these two. And in that regard, it didn't work out. Um, You know, I think there were worse outcomes possible, uh, including giving James Harden the contract that he wanted. But when you take a step back and look at like what kind of an asset Ben Simmons is and how that has fallen off of a cliff, like just not making the trade would have left the Sixers in a much worse spot. Um, So obviously there are a lot of what ifs, what other options were out there at the time of the Ben Simmons trade. Could this, uh, you know, drama with Harden have been avoided, all of that. But when you like, like I said, just taking a step back, there were definitely worse outcomes than, than where they ended up, uh, which is surprising given the fact that James Harden has spent the summer calling Daryl Morey a liar uh, and they are no longer playing together. Yeah, that's de- it definitely like it, I, I would say in some ways more dramatic than anything else, but also impactful. I mean, obviously, James Harden, a talented basketball player who is no longer on the Philadelphia 76ers. And I think the the baseline that I want to start with, and I wrote a piece on this for The Athletic a few months ago, is one of the front office's motivations in everything that they've done. It seems pretty abundantly clear now when you consider what they got for James Harden is maintaining flexibility, spending power, if you want to call it that, for the 2024 offseason. I guess the place within that to start is, do you do, do you think that that is a worthwhile thing to prioritize given where Philadelphia has been the last eight to ten months yeah well i think i think probably the way i would phrase it is they prioritized uh, having as many options as they could and and 
free agency next summer is one of those options. I think if Daryl Morey had his way, he would make a trade at the deadline this year that would eat into that cap space, but that he would be happy eating into that cap space uh, to accomplish, whether that means either a player on a multi-year deal or probably more likely a player on an expiring deal that he then intends to give uh, a next contract to. But I think he certainly wants to have you know expiring contracts just because it's easier to match salary. And also because if a trade doesn't materialize, he then can pivot uh, and use that in free agency. But I do think free agency is probably plan B. It's just a plan B. They were not willing to compromise uh, in this James Harden trade. So, you know, in terms of free agency, like, look, Philadelphia doesn't necessarily have the greatest free agency track record here. Uh, you know, they signed Al Horford a couple years back. Before that, they signed Elton Brand. You're not going to find very many. Cha- I mean, there's not many championships down Broad Street anyway, but you're not even going to find many all star appearances that have come to Philadelphia through free agency. And I think there's, you know, like I said, I think it's mostly that Daryl wants as many options as he can. One of those options that he values is free agency. But I do think that is sort of the backup plan and what they're trying to accomplish here. That is a really good way to frame it. And I mean, the idea of trading for a potential free agent is fascinating because you think about the idea of what were the chances, what do you gain from that versus signing the player outright? And one of the things you obviously get is the player for the period from when you acquire them through the rest of the regular season and ideally the postseason. And so for whoever that is, that, that can be really valuable. And in certain cases, depending on who the player in question is, you might benefit from a lower cap hold than their contract. You're not going to get something mm-hmm. wild like Tyrese Maxey, probably in a second player. I mean, they have that to an extent with KJ Martin, but KJ Martin is obviously a much lesser player than their targets. And so you think about those potential regents and it becomes this staring contest that is not only Daryl Morey and the general manager of the team with the player in question, but also the player in question. And so whether that is Pascal Siakam, Cameroonian native Pascal Siakam, or OG Ananobi, or I don't think Drew Holiday really fits this bill, or but some of those types of players where... If they, if the player can convince Masai Ujiri, in in the case of a couple of the guys I mentioned, that they're going to leave, then can you can you come to reasonable terms? But if he can sufficiently convince Ujiri of that, then how willing is Philly to give up the assets for the basically for the February to June period? Yeah, I mean he he basically did this a couple of years ago with uh you know with James Harden uh, sure. getting the the Nets to trade him to the Sixers in advance of that. Uh, and I think I think Daryl views you know, having those bird rights and the higher chance of retaining them, you know, especially if you're talking about a a, a star who is, you know, there tends to be a, a rosy, um, you know, everything is great period. And that tends to line up with when the next contract is going to come. I think he would, he would prioritize having those bird rights quite a bit in part because I think he feels like it gives them a much better chance of bringing them back to the next contract uh, than it would just trying to sound, uh, sign them outright. But also in part because it allows him to be a little more aggressive in the other moves that he makes. You know, the Sixers have like a hundred million dollars in expiring contracts. They're not going to want to bring if they don't get like that next star at the trade deadline this, um, you know, this February. They're not going to then use the rest of that expiring contracts to try to bring back people who can help that might be on multi-year deals. So if he gets someone like, let's say, Pascal or OG, who he feels like is the the person that he would have pursued in free agency anyway, then he can be more aggressive with some of the other expiring contracts, more aggressive with trying to get role players and really try to add to this roster for the stretch run. And I think when you're in a situation like the Sixers are with Embiid, like you have to prioritize the stretch stretch run a little bit, not at the expense of the next big move, uh, because I think they're still a player away from being a true contender. 
But if you can get that player, then you know having another run in them uh, would be a, a huge value. So I think they're going to you know, be aggressive, like I said, uh, use some of their draft capital to try to get that done within the next couple of months rather than relying on free agency. But there does become some kind of a cost uh, that you have to worry about for sure. There does. And the way that I've been thinking about it, I was explaining to somebody the uh, the nature of what 60 million, which is roughly what Philadelphia projects to have right now, depending on a few variables, how that's kind of a big swing and a little swing. If we're talking about using it as cap space, because just how much the best players cost right now. And one big benefit that I can see of the proactive approach, meaning you acquire players trade deadline or earlier, is that you can make the little swing bigger because you have all those expiring contracts and you also open up a universe of players that are not necessarily on expiring contracts and it just so happened you know like through free agency or something else and it just so happens that i would say this preliminarily looks like a relatively weak class for the for more of the little swings like it, yep. it has some guys like you know, uh, depending on what Kyle Lowry wants or what, you know, Gordon Hayward, who like could potentially fit in different iterations of the team, what those kind of guys want. But if you basically have the entire universe of everyone who is matching salary for Tobias Harris or for some of these other things, well, then maybe you can come, you can come find something that makes a lot more sense. And because you've already acquired that other player, you can, you can build the team and assess all the fits. You don't have to do it a little bit more separated from each other. Yep. No, 100%. I agree with you 100%. So one of the questions that is lingering for me that we may never get a clear answer to, I think we have kind of the public positions from Harden and management, we'll put it that way, is what was truly on the table for the Sixers and Harden this past summer? And in a very human sense, like I kind of understand where both sides are coming from, depending on what verbiage, what terminology was shared back in 22 when Harden, you know, took a little bit less money to facilitate them having stronger teammates, which, you know, that is a decision that he made that had a financial sacrifice and that hopefully he considers quote unquote worth it. But the idea to me that, so like there was one, Woj floated out this idea that like maybe possibly it could have been like a a longer multi-term deal. And then Harden's expectation was basically that it was a one-year deal with a team option. Even if that one year could have been more lucrative than the option he the player option he ended up picking up do you like what do you think is closer to the truth of those kind of pronouncements yeah i've certainly spoken to people on both sides and gotten both of their fears or concerns or reasons for acting the way they did and i think the best sort of summation i can give is you know i there was all there's really no communication leading up to free agency you know i think from daryl's perspective and and daryl both on and off the record or at the Sixers on and off the record have spoken that, you know, they were concerned about uh, tampering because they got the two tampering charges last summer and didn't want to get another one. I think, and this is me reading tea leaves that, you know, leading up the free agency, basically, I think they're going to offer a contract that they probably didn't believe more or uh, Harden was going to be happy with. So leading up the free agency, um, you know, there's, and again, this is tea leaf reading here, but I, I don't think they believe that uh, presenting him with an offer that was going to piss him off was necessarily going to lead to where they wanted to go. Uh, and I think they probably felt like if they made an offer, he was going to try to use Houston to leverage them and get that higher to where he wanted to be or closer to where he wanted to be than what they were offering. And then once Houston backed out after Ime was hired, um, you know, I think the Sixers probably felt like they had leverage. So there was a lack of communication. And James Harden, like you mentioned, you know, he's turned down some big contracts in the past. There's probably a little regret in that regard. He gave them a discount the previous season. 
all of a sudden he went from feeling like he was going to get rewarded for that financial sacrifice to feeling like he was being leveraged uh, for the first time in really his career. And do I think the Sixers, you know, you mentioned that report. I think there was reporting that he felt like he was going to get like maybe a one plus one. I do think the Sixers probably were going to offer more than that, but it never got to that point because basically because the Sixers were, uh, there was so little communication leading up to it. I think James Harden panicked uh, and felt betrayed and acted in a way that they weren't predicting. I don't think anyone in the Sixers organization predicted he would have opted into that second year of that contract. I think they probably felt like even if they pissed James Harden off at the initial offer, he would go out in the market, come back, realize the Sixers were probably offering the most long-term money and and eventually come to grips with that. But because he reacted the way he did and opting in and immediately demanding a trade, it never even got to the point. I don't think they really ever exchanged solid uh, numbers in that regard because by the time that the Sixers were willing to do that, the... Um, you know, the consequences of sort of that strategy had already been acted upon. Um, so I don't know exactly what the Sixers were going to offer. I don't think James Harden's camp know exactly what the Sixers were going to offer. I don't think anyone at this point is really going to, um, you know, be fully truthful or at least fully transparent uh, about what, um, you know, what they were expecting or what they were leaning towards. It's uh, it's it's messy for sure. Uh, and I think if there was one duo, one star and GM duo that you didn't expect this to happen to, it was probably the Sixers and Daryl Morey and James Harden, in part because Daryl Morey was presumably the biggest James Harden booster and apologist and enabler in the league and because they had a decade of experience. Uh, so it is surprising that, you know, this unfolded the way it did. Like I said, I think part of it is that I think Daryl Morey was probably using leverage more than James Harden thought he would and expected he would. And I think that ruffled some feathers and caused a lot of panic. And it's just, it was, it was stunning. It's still stunning to me to stay that he opted in. Um, I, I can't believe that happened. I understand the fear that he probably felt and it was probably some fear that was justified because I do think the Sixers probably looked at it and said, look, we have a chance to get James on a better contract than we expected because, you know, Houston backed out because there's no market out there. Uh, but I don't think they were going to leverage him as much as James thought they were going to. Um, I think he probably panicked a little bit. But this is, again, all just speculation, because even when I talk to people, everyone's biased and has an agenda or their fears are coming out or they're trying to spin a story. Absolutely. Uh, it is largely tea leaf reading based on conversations I've had. I agree with all of that. But I also think at the same time, as much as it was shocking and everything else, if we want to take kind of take an alternate tack for a second, if Harden made the decision, whether it was financially motivated, emotionally motivated or both, and I think it was probably both, that at some point he didn't want to be a sixer anymore. That and as surprising as that is when you consider the relationship between Maury and Harden, though I will say that a relationship that is symbiotic is always looks more sustainable than one that has really had tough times because remember Maury left before yes. everything went. And so like I I always have trouble it, with that, you know, like the the when you've been through the war, like the, another really interesting example of this, like because it's geographically closer to me is like there haven't been that many acrimonious contract negotiations with the Golden State Warriors yet. And right. I mean, Draymond's had a little bit, but like the stuff with Clay, we're going to get to see a lot more about his relationship with that organization over the next year because right. of, because of that. When easy. James Harden says, I want all the money you can give me, and Daryl Morey says, I agree, you're worth all the money I can give you, it's real easy to be on the same page. I agree. It, it really is. But so what I want to go to is this idea that, let's say for whatever reason, James Harden has evaluated that he does not want to be in Philadelphia anymore, whether that's for money reasons, that's because he feels he got betrayed or anything else. Once, If you take that as given for the sake of this exercise, I would argue that things worked out as well for him as they reasonably could have. And what I mean by that is he's getting paid for this year and then he is an unrestricted free agent and we'll see how that works out. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. 
But he's on the team he wanted to be on, and it happened earlier because if Harden had opted out and signed a new contract with Philly, even if his intention was to get out of there as quickly as possible, as quickly as possible would have been significantly later than now. Right. And so it, I don't, I don't know that any party involved expected what happened to happen, but basically once it was something I didn't think about until yesterday is that the way Harden handled it actually made it significantly more likely that movement was going to happen earlier. And part of the reason I didn't fully process that was until there was a little bit of subsequent reporting about not only the owners being involved, but potentially the league being involved. And how many of these factors Harden and his representation considered, I don't know. But when you kind of go take the thousand, take the thousand mile view now, it's like, oh yeah, that does kind of make sense. Yeah, and I think it always made sense for Harden to target the Clippers in part because if there's one team that was, you know, he, he has to get to a team that, that has interest in paying him. And I think there's a chance uh, that that they would want to. You know, the only way this didn't really work out for the for Harden is if, well, what happens if Daryl Morey was actually the one who was going to offer him the best contract that he's going to get? And, you know, I think there was a, a and I, I'm not even saying he was because I truthfully don't know. And even if Daryl Morey would come out and give me the exact terms of what he was going to offer, I wouldn't believe him. Not because I'm holding up a hashtag Daryl Morey is a liar sign, but just because there's no reason for him to be truthful in this regard. But like, is there a, a world where like, you know, James Harden came into that expecting the four year 207 or whatever the exact numbers were? Let's say maybe Morey ends up coming to grips with I'm comfortable offering maybe three years, 120. And I'm just throwing out numbers. If that ends up being more than what the Clippers offered, is he losing money because of an emotional reaction? I don't know, but I think there's a chance that could have ended up being the case. There is absolutely a chance. And from L.A.'s perspective, there is also a big dynamic in play because with what happened, Harden is unextendable. And so what that means is there is immense pressure on everyone involved, but especially James Harden, to do their damnedest to make it work right now. Because Kawhi and Paul George are extension eligible at this moment. If they opt out, you know, they, they could make themselves extension eligible and then extend. But the current expectation is probably that all three of those players will have the ability, one case, the certainty to the other, the choice to become free agents. And so it's beneficial for all involved, including the Clippers, for this to go as well as it reasonably can. Yep, yep, for sure. So let's get back to Philadelphia's kind of perspective on this. And and once they've made the evaluation, which seems completely reasonable, that, that James Harden was either not going to be back at all or was not going to be himself and back, something we have seen before with Mr. Harden, how do you feel about what they acquired, both in terms of, I guess we'll call them expiring contracts, but also players who can potentially help them, and draft capital? Yeah, I think the way I said this on a recent show is I gave them a B. You know, I think this is one where it's probably a little less than what they're truly gunning for. Like, I think they wanted that second unprotected Clippers pick uh, and they they didn't get that. I don't think the Clippers were going to give that up. But, you know, I think Daryl Morey always wanted one of two things. He wanted either Terrence Mann. We felt like he could flip for another first round pick or that second first round pick. So I think they ended up getting it now that that second first round pick. So they got the 2028 unprotected Clippers pick and then they got the 2026 pick, which is the least favorable out of Houston, OKC. Um, and the Clippers in that year. So mm-hmm. you're not shorting uh, the Clippers as much. You're probably going to end up with a, at the very best, mid to late teens pick from the Thunder or maybe even one up to the mid 20s, depending on how they, uh, you know, progress over the next couple of years. So I don't think it's a home run in that regard. You know, I think there's probably both teams probably have a re- reasonable case that if they would have held out and, you know, 
held strong, they might have been able to get a little bit more from the Clippers' perspective. You know, that that period between now and maybe January, if Harden would have really just been a pain in the ass at some point and, and Maury would have felt pressured to move them, especially to move them before maybe like a December 15th or so deadline. So they or early December deadline. So they could then aggregate those salaries before for the actual trade deadline. Um, Sixers could have lost a little bit of leverage and the Sixers could have gained leverage if you could have actually convinced Harden to, you know, stick around and be a relative team player until the trade deadline and maybe get another team or two involved. So I think both teams probably feel like they left a little bit on the table by getting this done. But I think there are such big benefits to getting it done now that that concession from both sides was probably worth it. Um, I think they did a, a reasonable job. You know, the difference between having one draft pick in 2029 to trade and now upwards of three draft picks to trade is pretty significant. Uh, and I think the Sixers certainly felt like they were left out of opportunities like the Drew Holiday trade. I think they didn't want to be left out of those opportunities going forward. And the draft picks and the matching salary they have right now just has a wider net of teams interested in them than having James Harden on the roster would. So I think it's an okay trade. Probably, like I said, probably a B. Uh, it's not a home run because it's the first step of a multi-step process, but I do think it accomplished what they wanted in terms of flexibility. I'm in the B range as well. And one thing that when Nate and I talked about the podcast, we didn't fully know was the the parameters on the 2029 pick swap. And yeah. I what, remember top, back top three protected. I think it's only top three protected. So that means that means the Clippers could and and by 2029 the LA Clippers could look dramatically different. Now I will caution. Sixers fans that generally speaking, owners who are aggressive spending and don't have an incentive, you know, like his top three, assuming the lottery odds stay the same, is too like it's too hard to pursue from the Clippers perspective to really do that. Like, unless you totally don't care what you're given Philly, they'll probably be pushing. So my instinct is that even if the Clippers are weak that year talent wise that they will still you know that the the pick isn't going to be top five like that's that that would just be my expectation but it gives it gives philadelphia more latitude and and so like that one you know there are some that are some of the assets they got that are more for trade purposes and that one i think is more of a you know like an upgrade point and in 29 i mean who the hell knows where either of these franchises is going to be so you can get into that and that made me more positive on this from philadelphia standpoint um it's it's a fascinating transaction. I mean, it gets into the nature of our business where like you have this instinct to just be like, well, it really depends on what each of these teams does from here. And that's true. Like that that's why all of these all these evaluations are contingent. But you have to evaluate everything on the face in and of itself. And my my instinct is that what Philadelphia got back in this deal is sufficient to interest another team and really what Philly has to be thinking about is who could potentially shake loose and now I will note it is significantly harder for a player in question whether that is a pending free agent or not to shake loose starting in November rather than like in June or July I mean it can take some time but usually it doesn't the Lillard case actually was a little slower than this usually works out. Harden, in some ways, was was more similar. Like we knew by July, well, we knew very quick. We we knew very abruptly, but we knew very quickly that he wanted to be somewhere else. And so I think that if they can, if however it happens, whether it's Philly convincing Player X or it's Player X just wanting it himself to be in Philadelphia, like they have the means to make that happen. And in a kind of, you could call it a dream scenario, there is also a possibility where whether it's through trading for both players in February or through something else, that if they can get the prime target using 
cap space without having to give up assets, then they can get a much better, you know, that small swing can be a lot bigger. And I'm not saying they can get like Mikael Bridges or something wild like that. But if you're looking at... Talk about a deep cut for Sixers fans since they did have Mikael Bridges at one point. Yeah, they did. Um, I'm not going to talk about peanuts. Um, <laughs> but it's... It's a, but still, if let's say you have 20 million to spend outside of the, the max, the max guy you get, whoever that ends up being. And you cannot say, instead of just, we have 20 million cap space, we can offer that. We can also offer, let's say two first round picks. Then you can get a much better player in that range. You could even potentially get a young guy who's still growing into their role, assuming ownership is willing to then pay the pay raise that will come with that player. But the idea being... I think that you brought up the idea that both um, both sides in the primary negotiation, because the, the Thunder are kind of their own thing here, could have done better if the, if there was waiting. Like it, there was variance in that they could work out. I was thinking more about how it could go worse for Philadelphia, just because James Harden player plus contract is not. It, it's a harder, narrower fit than a lot of players, and the risk that the Clippers and I think this came up in a recent piece, the Clippers either just decide it's not worth it anymore or just are able to secure somebody else for largely the same package yeah oh no there was definitely downside to both teams waiting as well uh that is a hundred percent true and the clippers you know they could have i guess theoretically another team could have become interested in harden too although you'd think that over the last couple of months we would have heard something of that sort but uh yeah no there was definitely risk there's probably more risk uh in these sixers holding out i i would agree with that not only because if the Clippers move on and move on to Malcolm Brogdon or whoever might be out there, uh, then you don't know where that next suitor is going to come from. And also because James Harden could have been a giant pain in the ass to a team that is trying to compete. And, you know, whether that is the growth of Tyrese Maxey and just having him know his role each and every night coming out or whether that is just, you know, tarnishing the feeling around the team. Um, there was downside for sure on the Sixers perspective. Let's shift our focus to the team that is remaining in Philadelphia. And I think this is a pretty fascinating group with the, the, the growth that we've already seen from Tyrese Maxey. And part of what excited me most about the Harden opt-in and trade request demand whatever is that it turned it it turned the axis of philadelphia to the combination of Embiid and maxi and my operating theory before the season was that the drop off other than not having Harden for the for the minutes that one or both of those players are unavailable which inevitably will happen is that the, that pairing would actually look really good offensively you watch the sixers more closely than i have the capacity to do do you do you think that it's looked good so far oh it's looked yeah it's looked very good those two um, you know, Tyrese Maxey is one of those players that every year he amazes me in the fact that there's always something that you say, like he wasn't able to do last year. And then he seemingly comes back and he's one of the better players in the league at it. Like a couple years ago, he did not have three point range off the dribble. He comes back and now he's bombing 27 footers, uh, step backs off the dribble, off screens, what have you. Last year, I looked it up recently. He had 68 points off of dribble handoffs. It just wasn't part of his game. Uh, this year, he has already had 25 points off dribble handoffs right from the jump, and he has formed a two-man game sort of almost similar to J.J. Redick 
or Marco Bellinelli or um, Seth Curry in the past. Like he has just added that to his game and he's looked much more natural playing alongside of Embiid than he has before. There's always going to come down a question of does he have enough playmaking and point guard instincts to really run a team because you want him to have the ball in his hands as much as possible. Uh, he's doing, I think, better in that regard, but the questions are still there. But just as a scorer, as you know, learning how to play off of Embiid, having every jump shot in his arsenal and becoming a little better at you know changing speeds and attacking into defenders and getting the free throw line each and every year he takes one aspect of his game sometimes multiple and turns them from weaknesses to strengths and it's really been amazing to watch you know a kid who shot 29 percent in college who i think shot 30 percent from three in his first year is legitimately one of the best high volume three-point shooters in the league for a couple years running now and he just keeps getting better now the one question that i've always had or had over the last year or two is playmaking I think that's a little tougher of a leap to project than it, it, like shooting is. But he's also made so many leaps that I almost feel stupid doubting him at this stage. And like I said, he does look like he has been better. Um, so I think that is what a lot of Sixers fans will key on, especially when you start talking about now trying to find a third star, star to pair next to that Maxi and Bede Nexus. But he's been, I mean, he's been fantastic. Better than I think anybody had any reasonable right to expect. It's only been three games. We always have to throw out that qualifier. But the way he's gotten to his points has been really, really impressive. I love the way you talked about how he's gotten to his points. And that's something that I've noticed as well. And the difference between what Maxi has been so far and like that ideal version of a lead guard, you know, with whoever you want to use as the model there. And it doesn't even have to be a guard sized player. I mean, LeBron for years was the engine of some of the league's best offenses. And, you know, of course, James Harden has been as well. It's a little bit different when you're playing with Joel Embiid because he bends things as well. And so one of the things I love about Maxi is that there's becoming a more comfortable interplay between those two. And the idea that Maxi might not be perfect in that like trademark pick and roll, like initiator role, that may open up some latitude in terms of who eventually becomes the the next biggest player on the Sixers and maybe that player is even better than Maxi. The, the no. hope would be that you can pull somebody like that because it is a little bit of an awkward fit that you're find, trying to find somebody who both has the capability of doing more but has the willingness to do less and that can always be tricky. There was some interesting stuff on Twitter today of I think it was Matt Moore talking about how DeMar DeRozan's presence in Chicago has shifted things for Zach Levine a potential Philadelphia target and that is something to consider but it also the viability of those two offensively opens the door for using that next big chip for a player who offense is not their selling point and for me the most compelling possibility is OG and Anobi yeah yeah especially if Maxi's growth is legitimate and OG and you know there's a prior relationship there with Nick Nurse whether that is a a, a benefit or a hindrance um you know I, I think OG's fine with Nick but I think there was a couple players who have maybe spoken out that you never truly know deep down um I think Nick can be I don't want to say tough to deal with, but, you know, maybe maybe tough on players to the point where anyway, my, my, my point is you have to see whether or not, um, you know, how each of those players feel about him. But OG is interesting because on the one hand, he's an elite defender and a really, really good catch and shoot player. And whenever you have those two skills, it is hard to ignore that. I would like him to do a little less offensively than he has in prior years and specifically a little less offensively than maybe he did under Nick Nurse. It seemed like Nick at times used to empower him with maybe more pick and roll opportunities than I would give him as a sort of reward for playing the way he plays defensively. Uh, And I think OG probably wants to do a little more. He's probably a fourth option who 
wants to be a second option. And that concerns me a little bit just because he has such a defined role that I think he can excel at. But man, if you can get him defensively and you can add his floor spacing alongside of Joel Embiid, they would certainly have something to build upon. And he is um, very interesting for sure. That also potentially because of Ananobi's versatility defensively, you're thinking about these five-man units and the high heights that the Philadelphia 76ers hope to be in. Well, then you can put him in a lot of different matchups. And and maybe you want, at times Ananobi will be a point of attack defender, at times he'll be a lead wing defender and you probably want somebody else capable who could you know be d'anthony melton depending on how everything shakes out and and i mean that's a that's another benefit of not having to go with the cap space plan because you have d'anthony melton and i think he has like a 15 million dollar cap hold correct if you can if you can you know acquire let's say og at deadline then you can much easy much more easily bring d'anthony back uh, and I do think they would be a, a, a good wing grouping for sure. For sure. And then that that last spot, you know, you're kind of gaming that out if Melton's one of them. Then you, you want somebody who's capable with the ball in their hands, who's a credible shooter and ideally not a sieve defensively. And that's a lot to ask. But considering you could have some size variability in that, I think it's potentially doable. Or you bridge it with multiple players who have different strengths and weaknesses and you kind of make it work that way. Yep. Plenty more to discuss, but first a message from FanDuel. Snap into action this season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That is $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use, wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, which I love, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Boston kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL, must be 21 or over and present in Massachusetts. Hope is here. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. Something I wanted to ask you about, I fixated on this in the early part of the offseason, and I want to give Daryl Morey credit for mitigating it to some extent with Kelly Oubre, was how some of the 22-23 Sixers in free agency left for very reasonable contracts. Like mm-hmm. what Shake Milton signed for in in Minnesota, what McDaniel signed for in Toronto. Those aren't, you know, bad contracts. Anyway, it's not the it's or or even like a situation like Bruce Brown in Indiana where I'm not saying Bruce Brown signed a bad contract for the Pacers. He just signed a contract with the Pacers the Nuggets could not do. Right. Do you think that like this is another part of that 2024 thread? Oh, and George Niang you can mention in this as well. Yeah. I think he got a, like, what do you got, a three-year? Yes. Three-year, like, 26-ish, 25, something in that range. Something yeah. in that range. And so, like, with, with George, I can, I can pull it up. Like It doesn't it, matter. It, it's, at first, it kind of soured me where it's like, oh, they could bring these guys back. They could be more competitive. I feel a little better about it now, but should I? No, I mean, I think they certainly hurt them. And I think Shake is going to be the one who you end up watching this team throughout the year and go, man, they could really use just one more ball handler on the squad. And especially, you know, I think that becomes especially true when Embiid misses time or if Maxi, heaven forbid, misses time because they just don't have anyone else to get them into any kind of offensive sets. They're really low. Even when Maxi goes to the bench, you end up running a lot of, you know, 
having Patrick Beverly sort of like initiate the offense. And that's never been Patrick Beverly's strength, but certainly not when he is 35. And I think that's going to, you know, I think you're going to end up seeing Anthony Melton maybe playing a little bit out of role and being overtaxed, trying to create in the half court. They certainly have a need for more shot creation and even just general ball handling and reasonable decision making. And Shake Milton, you know, he never really found a way to play alongside of Harden and Maxi effectively. But there was a stretch there in December when both Maxi and Harden were out and he won them like two or three games legitimately and kept them competitive while they had a lot of missed games due to injury. And they just don't have that option right now. And I, I was thinking about that stretch as well, and and that yeah, you need you need those players over the course of the season, and and the hope is always that by April your team is 100, percent but you know that they're not going to be throughout October to April. Right, right, yeah, they, they it might end up being you know I I watch a lot of baseball, it might end up just being like the NBA equivalent of a 4A player, just an innings eater, someone to get you through the regular season and keep you competitive, but they they have a real um, dearth of those kind of players right now, especially especially on the perimeter. And I think that's just a consequence of, of you know, I think Daryl prioritized uh, having that flexibility, like I said, that backup plan of 2024 for agency, and that was a consequence of it. Because I think you're right. I think especially Shake and McDaniels, I'm not too high on McDaniels, um, but they both signed reasonable contracts, and I think that comes down to being flexible. It does come down to being flexible. And there would be an argument theoretically of like, oh, if you end up going the going the door where you trade for the players now, like you could have theoretically kept them, but you kind of need to keep the flexibility to, to do it unless you're going to be confident enough. And, and we've seen teams pull this off before, but it's hard of just saying like, if we have to trade them, we can. But the challenge with that, and I could think of various examples over the years, is it doesn't take much. Oh, I mean, unfortunately, one of the obvious ones here is Brandon Clark, where it doesn't take much for that to change. And if that changes, then the whole dynamic shifts and you don't want a $7 million player to change what you want to do for $40 million players. Right. Someone, exactly. someone else I want to ask you about is Jane Springer. Springer, uh, the Sixers, it seemed it seemed perilous that his third year option was going to get picked up. And then at times it seemed perilous that his fourth year option was going to get picked up. You, of course, do that a year ahead. That's the way the rookie scale works. He had a much better preseason. What have you seen from him so far and what are you expecting this season? I'm not sure I know what I'm expecting because I don't think Nick Nurse is fully bought in yet on on Springer. And they certainly added more depth here with this trade, especially more depth uh, in terms of the forward spots. So I'm not sure there's quite as clear of a path. And now he has someone like KJ Martin to compete against as well, who is similar in terms of at least the youth and athleticism. You know, I think Jane Springer is a hell of a perimeter defender. He might legitimately be their best perimeter defender right now uh, in terms of just versatility, in terms of moving his feet, in terms of getting through screens on the perimeter. He checks all those boxes where pretty much everyone else you could go through and they might check two out of three, but they don't check them all. And I think and then you add in just highlight plays. He had an incredible block against Tatum in the preseason. He's had a couple of blocks here even early in the regular season in, in spare minutes. The question has always been, can he be playable offensively? And for the first two years of his career, that was an, a resounding no. And whether it's just shooting, the ball handling, he just didn't have enough where you could feel comfortable putting him on, a on the floor. Well, he came out, I think he shot like seven for eight from three in the preseason. And whatever, that's a small sample. Like nobody's going to fully buy in just off of that. But he looked confident doing it. Um, he had decent diversity doing it. It wasn't just, you know, feet cemented in the corner shooting. And he just made general good decisions in terms of cutting, in terms of passing. He didn't really get outside of himself. He looked like a much more competent and much more 
capable offensive player than he had at any point in his career before. And again, I don't want to overstate that. It's just he didn't cause me anxiety offensively the way that he previously did. And he looked confident shooting the ball. And those are two big developments. Now, he came out, um, you know, I think he he played five minutes in the Sixers first game and Milwaukee went on a huge run. I don't think that was really his fault, but I think he was caught in there and they didn't come out and play in the second half. And then he had another appearance where he picked up four fouls in a couple of minutes. And Nick didn't really go back to him very much after either of those. So I think there's just not a whole lot of trust right there. I hope that he can earn that because like I said, I think he can end up being an impact defender and the combination of physical tools and effort are 100% there. Um, I am more confident offensively than I have been in the past, but it does seem like he still has to win the trust. And like I said, I think, uh, I think it might be a little bit tougher for uh, him to do so now because there's just more depth. There's more veteran depth and we can get into whether Batum or Covington have much left in the tank. Um, but coaches, especially coaches on competing teams tend to default to players that they trust their decision making. And you would certainly understand if he trusted Nick Batum's decision making over Jaden Springer. Um, but I do hope he gets a shot because I think he's put in the work and he's made progress. And again, I was with you. Like if you had asked me six months ago, I didn't think they would pick up his fourth year rookie option. And I didn't really feel too bad about that either. He just hadn't, he looked like he was still a little ways away from being a viable offensive player in the NBA. But I think he's shown enough where he deserves a chance to, uh, to prove that. First off, should we refer to the anxiety that a player produces for you offensively as the Thibel threshold? Is that does that seem appropriate? For moving <sighs> yeah, forward? that's a that's a that's a tough one. Yeah. And with Springer, what what is so encouraging beyond the, the development offensively is I, I talked about this a lot with the Wizards guys and like Johnny Davis has had a brutal first year plus and the Wizards picked up his option. I supported that because it's, the idea is basically like, what is the worst that happens with in Springer's case that four million dollars and worst comes to worst. You don't you you desperately need a little bit more spending power and either you pay another team likely with cash to take on that four million. And as we've seen over the last year plus that actually isn't that prohibitive cost-wise. Like, I mean, right. what OKC's done, what San Antonio's done over the last couple of years, and especially with a guy like Springer, the San Antonio or their equivalent next year could even just be interested in having him and then getting match rights. You know, like, they, they might not even want to cut it. Like, they could be, like, maybe more like what, not that he's as accomplished as Jetty Osman, but what Osman's doing this year for them. And... Then, or worse comes to worse, like, okay, you need the spending power. You stretch that four million over three years, and it's not that big a deal. Like, then you have you have a little bit over a million on your cap. Big whoop. And so, like, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm excited that they picked it up. I think it was the right decision, even with how poorly he played before. And the other part of it, beyond, like, the, like, player as asset, which is, you know, necessary, but not always a comfortable discussion, is the idea that if Springer develops over the next six months, and especially over the next 16 months, he could be somebody that whatever the Sixers look like at that point is extremely valuable. And right. when you, again, we've talked about how the axis of this team changes with everything that happened with James Harden. One of the greater challenges that teams have to deal with now is that generally speaking, you don't want your lead offensive creator guarding the other team's lead offensive creator. And so what that means theoretically is you don't want Tyrese Maxey being the point of attack guy. And absolutely that player can be somebody they sign in free agency. It could be Anthony Melton, but having more bites at that, that apple, especially because point of attack defense is really important depending on scheme, but particularly if you're playing something closer to a drop is extremely important if the player can navigate screens well that the chance that Springer become is is that guy and is playable offensively it's totally worth rolling those dice 
Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, like you, I'm glad they picked it up because I mean, let's be honest, what is, what's $4 million? Like a third of the mid-level at this point? Like it is not going to be cost prohibitive if you do have to move that contract and the Sixers right now are in a spot where they shouldn't have to move that contract. Uh, I think it probably became a little bit easier. Like they, they waited until the last day, which just so happened to be the day that the James Harden trade um, happened. So I think the fact that they had the knowledge that, you know, they moved PJ Tucker and his $11.5 million off of the books for next summer as well, that might have made the decision a little bit easier just because it became a lot more clear that they had a max slot available if they wanted it. But even still, I would hope that they would, uh, you know, hope that they would pick it up just to see if he develops. Because if he does, then he is going to have positive trade value. And if he doesn't, then it's just not going to be cost prohibitive to move on from that. It's a a very late first round pick. uh, So I think they made the right call here. Two more things I want to ask you before we head out. I know your time is valuable. One is early going. How are you feeling about how Joel Embiid is looking physically and play wise? He looked sluggish. He only played one preseason game. He looked sluggish in that game. He looked very sluggish in the game against the Bucks. He's looked pretty good here over the last two. And Joel is a, a rhythm player, and he's also a player who doesn't ever truly get in the best shape until he's playing basketball regularly. It's just the way it's been throughout his career. And I think just getting back to the point where he's playing every couple of days, uh, I expect him to pick back up pretty quickly. He certainly was not where he needed to be when the season starts, but I've been impressed the last two games. Like I thought I thought with how sluggish he looked there against the uh, the Bucks to come back out um, in these last two, he's he's been much better than I expected. I realize there's one more I have to ask, and I can't believe I didn't get to this earlier. There is the Joel Embiid elephant in the room in terms of Harden and everything else, and it's how, whether whether rational or not, and I'm not saying Joel Embiid is irrational, he evaluates not only this decision, but also what happens over the next stretch. And a key question is just going to be, it's like a pressure, and this was probably existed either way, is... It's not only about this season. I think that, you know, this season's going to be what it'll be. But there's pressure on whatever happens, whether it's in February of 24, June 24, July of 24, August 24, not only to be successful on paper as it happens, but also to actually work out. And the, the analogy, not that I hope that this happens in any way, I brought up Gordon Hayward as a potential low swing, but what happened with him in Boston? Because Joel Embiid is not on this like immediate timeline. And so it's not only, hey, we signed the right guy, we got something that works, but to an extent, because Embiid's you know future is in some ways up to his control, even though he's under contract until 26th at the earliest, is that you can make the right signing and have it not work out. And that's always hard, but also that's how the NBA works. Yeah, yeah. And look, there's going to be constant speculation about Joel Embiid and his future and is he happy? And for some reason, there's constant speculation about the Knicks because his former agent now runs them. Like there's a super close bond between agent and player that you just can't shake past. And it's natural just because like we spend NBA, the NBA has proven that you have to worry about this. And we will always worry about it until either Joel Embiid retires or he asks out. It's impossible not to. But I still go back and it's just like there's I haven't gotten any indication from Joel or anyone close to Joel that he is close to reaching that tipping point. And that doesn't mean that no tipping point exists. We just saw that with with Dame and how that has shaken out here over the last 24 months. You never really know when you can get close to that tipping point. But I do think he is I think he wants to be in Philly. I think he he is giving Daryl Morey a chance to, you know, work his way out of this. And I, I, I just I don't think we're all that close. And I hope that sort of stays um, because I think there is a real bond between Embiid and the fan base. I think it's a two way bond. Uh, like I said, that's not going to necessarily um, absolve the Sixers of being competent around him. 
and, and putting together a, a champion. But I, uh, you know, I, th- I think right now they're on pretty good solid footing. I want it to work out as well. And the absence of evidence is not the evidence of anything. <laughs> you right. know, the idea like, oh, no, well, there were these, the commitments. All. It's just like, we'll see. And the other piece of advice as somebody who has seen countless fan bases now navigate these murmurs, some like the Bucks, where it ended up working out exceedingly well for them, where they won a championship and Giannis is re-signed, and others where it has led to the player's departure, either immediately or later on. Enjoy the ride while you have it, because yep. Joel Embiid is an awesome basketball player, and as long as he's on the team you care about, you should be happy about that. Yeah, and it's, this is one where like I feel like, and I, I feel like I'm partially responsible, because I've, I've spent most of my writing career being obsessed over doing everything you can to win a championship and but i feel like this is one area and i'm not gonna say i regret that but like i think that philosophy and how prevalent that has become has made it tougher to maybe enjoy good teams and great careers that come up short and you know i think social media changes that in a big way like i think the fact that we are all online constantly talking about basketball and about our teams 24 hours a day changes the narrative a bit you know i do wonder Teams in the past, even like, let's say, a a Dirk-level career, when it took them so long, would it have been tougher to stick that through if social media was as big part of the conversation as it is today? And I I, I hope that, you know, Sixers fans, because I I think there's a lot of disappointment, uh, both in this team and, and even in Joel at times, you know, because they haven't accomplished what they set out to do and because Joel has come up short in some pretty big moments. But I do hope that they can, you know, take a step back at times and appreciate it because watching him grow from that completely new and underdeveloped prospect in Kansas into what he is now has been an edge case level outlier level development. And the skill development has been fun to watch. I never in a million years, and I scouted the draft pretty heavily back then for Draft Express. I I, I thought he was the best prospect in the draft. I even said after he broke his navicular bone that I would have taken him number one overall. I said that at the time. And even with that out of the way, he has exceeded my expectations, especially in terms of skill development. I never in a million years would have thought this is a guy who's going to lead the league in scoring multiple years running and develop into the kind of diversified player that he is. So I think there's reasons to be frustrated with him at times, certainly reasons to be frustrated with this team. We could go back to all of the craziness that has happened here over the last seven years. But I think there's room to do that and also still appreciate what he has become and what you get to watch on a nightly basis. And it's a real tough balancing act to find uh, and even a tough balancing act to cover as a journalist and analyst covering the team. But certainly, um, you know, this has been a a pretty wild ride and a pretty great career um, that we have gotten to watch unfold. Absolutely. And we don't know where it's going from here, but the development, the story, I mean, I was thinking I, every once in a while I, I watched John. I mean, you and I did watch a lot of stuff in the draft process, too. I remember hearing about him and like the, the segment on his development in your own Weitzman's book is super good. And just that it these these kinds of player development stories don't happen. And when you combine it with not only the personal story, but also just the person that Joel Embiid is, at least publicly, I can't speak to really what he is in private. And even if I did have that relationship, I couldn't speak to everything else. And it's just like, it's, it's been a delight to see what he has become. And I'm so thankful that, that so many people get to enjoy it. Yeah, no. And I, like I said, I think there's a pretty strong connection here between the fans and the superstar and the city. Um, I hope that uh, I hope that they all get rewarded with uh, with, with with the title down the line. Uh, it is tough winning a title in this league in this era is tough. Uh, it is you know a lot of teams are going to go all in here over the next couple of years, and most of them are going to come away empty-handed. And that is sort of the game that we play. But it has 
been, like I said, it's been a fun ride. Last question. And I know this is unfair, but we will acknowledge to the listeners that it is lightly informed speculation rather than anything like that. And thankfully, these don't really get aggregated very much. If you had to guess who the second or third best 76er is for the, the start of the 24-25 season. So Maxi Embiid and blank. Who do you think is the most likely blank? That's a great question. Uh, I, I mean, I think that is a question most Sixers fans are interested in. It's whenever you have a trade that is clearly designed to set up the next trade, that is... Um, you know, that that's the question. If I had to pick a name out of the ones currently out there, I think OG makes a lot of sense just as someone who might be on the move and somebody who fits what the Sixers are looking for. But if I had to say, like, if I could pick the field in terms of one that we're not even expecting, I would say it's probably the field just because it seems like that is the way the NBA ends up shaking out. It's going to be a player that is not currently thought of as available, who becomes available. I mean, you can just look back to Drew Holiday, who was a core centerpiece of the Bucks until the very moment that he wasn't. And then all of a sudden he ends up on their chief rival and it happened all in a blink of an eye. Uh, this stuff can change pretty quickly. But if I'm looking at, you know, you're basically right now looking at teams who are disappointing or overpaid or old or some company, usually usually in a combination of all three. And it just seems like the Raptors and the Bulls are the teams that most people will go to. You know, obviously, Levine is a great talent, but I think OG fits maybe what the Sixers are looking for and what you would want to bet on on that next contract more. So I think he is probably the one I would say, even if I would acknowledge that by saying I think he's a pretty overrated offensive player because he's being asked to do a little too much. Um, but I think my overall answer would be the field and somebody that we're not expecting right now. That's a great answer um, for the sake of full disclosure. When when I was writing all this stuff about the Sixers in 24, my thought had long been Pascal Siakam because not only the Cameroon connection, but he's an extremely talented player. Like you could make an argument that if he changes teams, Pascal Siakam will be the most talented player to change teams in the 24 offseason. Um, there yes. are a lot of other candidates. A lot of other candidates like Kawhi and, but I don't think a lot of those guys are going to change teams. Yeah, I just I can't. And there are people who can speak better. This I just, I would be surprised seeing Kawhi and PG leaving LA. Exactly. Um, I I wholeheartedly agree. I would be less surprised to see Harden for a variety of reasons, but um. I think Kawhi and Paul George, who have already chosen to be there, will choose to be there again. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we're in, we're in full-throat agreement there. So I originally had thought Siakam, in part because of the Cameroon stuff, but in part because, like, he's a, he's a very good basketball player. I have I've moved off of that a little bit in the last week. There's been a little bit, I think, Mike Scotto and Keith Pompey, when their podcast together, had a little bit on this. But for me, it's also the idea that the way Siakam plays, and guess who knows a lot about that, and it's Nick Nurse, it's... I think it's too incongruous. And while Anobi has been encouraged by the aforementioned Nick Nurse to explore the studio space, I think it's more <laughs> likely that Anobi is both the player and is the, like kind of can, can, he's a, he's more moldable. I think at this point in time, and that that could be very useful for Philadelphia. And like Siakam, you know, he's going to be age thirty when he signs his next contract. There there is the idea of like can, the things that the things that he is taking a step back on defensively to become more of an offensive player would he be able to do that and how would he fit in but it's as you said the field is a tantalizing group because the field not only includes all of the potential free agents that we could discuss it also includes trades yep. and who shakes loose and we've found now that 
I mean, you can use Lillard as an instructive example that there is no guarantee that a player who wants out is going to get exactly where they want to go. But what Philadelphia has is they're one of the few teams that is both good right now with an exciting future that also has financial flexibility. So it is not a circumstance like Lillard to Miami where he wants to go there and most of the structures of a trade are not particularly favorable to Portland. There is a way where Philadelphia, after making this move, and this is why the Harden trade is in the B range and not the C range or the D range, that player X wants to be in Philly and Team X wants to get a reasonable return and that Philadelphia can offer that reasonable return. Yeah, yeah. No, and and with a lot of these trades, like you have to not only be able to trade for them, but still have a competitive team team around them and also have the financial flexibility to pay them. And with the uh, you know recent CBA changes, that even becomes a little more dicey than it u- it previously was. And the Sixers are pretty uniquely equipped to be able to meet all three thresholds. You still have to have a star, or at least an impact level player who wants to join that group. But I do think they're going to have their options. Um, and certainly, you know, just sort of wrapping up the conversation on the two Toronto forwards, it is fascinating because they have just been, you know, overtaxed offensively, both those players for a couple of years now. Which one would be more interested and willing to buy back into what might be their op- uh, most optimal role? I think Nick Nurse would certainly have a good, um, you know, good bearing on that. So I think th- there will naturally be a lot of discussion on them, but it will be, you know, I think the good thing about the Sixers now is that they can just sort of wait for this to develop. And with the Harden situation looming over them, you maybe felt like they couldn't do that or they couldn't have that kind of patience. Uh, now they now they do. And I think they should still win a decent chunk of games. I think when I was on with um, Nate a couple weeks ago, I had them right around 49, 50 wins. I still think that, you know, they have a chance of doing that. And if they can do that and keep themselves afloat until the trade deadline, when the trade market's a little more active, uh, they have a chance to reshuffle this roster and salvage. I think what a lot of people thought was maybe a lost season. Uh, are they as good as Boston? No, I certainly don't think that. But they have a chance of, you know, if they do things right, of putting themselves back in the conversation. Absolutely. And I will thank you so much for taking the time. Yep. My pleasure. Thanks again to Derek Bodner for taking the time to come on. He has a lot going on with the excellent work that PHLY is doing such a great team there. And I'm, I'm thrilled for their success and for Derek doing great written work, audio, and then they have a visual component as well. That's, that's impressive as somebody who reluctantly does the video component himself at times. I'm really impressed with that. And love having him on whenever it is a possibility. And I mean, those of you who've listened to Real Jam Radio for a long time know know that Derek and I used to have these really fun conversations about the draft because he came up through Draft Express and we used to talk about that in the context of the 76ers and not. And to have a team where especially fueled by one of the good people we talked about a lot and Joel Embiid is so exciting for me. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player for choosing. You can also subscribe and download the show. That is particularly useful for Real GM Radio because it is never going to come out on a specific day of the week. Even if I wanted to, which I don't, it's my availability, guest availability for this week. Derek Bodner had a lot of stuff going on at the beginning of the week after the trade happened. And then I'm like, hey, let me give you a couple days. Things like that happen. So that's why subscribing is so useful. You can also help other people find the show by leaving a rating, leaving a review, and just word of mouth, like that idea where, hey, this specific episode or the show in general, this podcast has been around a long time, but there are still people who are finding it, and I appreciate everyone who helps somebody else find the show, however you see fit. The single most important thing you can do to support Real Jam Radio and any other show that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is FanDuel, fanduel.com slash Boston. I talked about it a lot during the meat of the show. 
New customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet, which is pretty cool. And you can also support, I guess, me by checking out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, Going Strong, we're you know, getting into the teeth of the season. And Nate and I are going pretty hard for the in-season tournament. We're excited about it. We've been skeptical of some other recent reforms, but we're really into the in-season tournament. And of course, that will really kick into gear on Friday and then throughout the month of November. That will not only be Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, but also we'll be doing some of those games, not only on playback, where we'll be doing playback, um, including on Friday, but we'll be doing some of it for the NBA strategy stream on League Pass as well. And the NBA strategy stream will be connected and not connected to the in-season room, just like playback. But you can check all those out. And written work at The Athletic. I have a new piece that's probably coming out pretty soon that will relate to the Sixers and the second apron and a lot of stuff. That's going through editorial right now. It may come out Friday, may come out early next week. I don't know exactly where it is in that process. And then I have another one that I've already submitted that's probably going to be a couple weeks out, and I have a bunch of other things in the, in the works as well. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I do not promise to get back to you, but I try. I really do try. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.